0: The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us a greater understanding of the kingdom you've called us to live in as we study, mark, and inwardly digest the words from Matthew. Amen. Uh, is this loud enough? Can you hear okay? I, I perceive that it's on. Okay, I'll just turn it on just a little bit. Okay, I don't want to, like, blast your ears. Is that, is that okay? That's not too loud, is it? Okay. Okay. Um, I'm just going to warn you, I'm taking this prednisone, and that may affect my mental acuity this morning. I was just, it's, it's not top notch, I'll tell you what. So, um, there we go. Um, well, I think we made it actually as far as Matthew 9, and we're really dragging our feet here, because the goal was we were going to get through all of Matthew by the end of ne- by next week, and I can tell you it's not going to happen, but, but we'll, we'll do our best, okay? So maybe I can be a little bit faster here, and... Um, In Matthew 9, we get this lovely scene, right, where people are mad because Jesus is eating with sinners. We'd already talked, I think, last time we talked about the the paralytic man who was brought to Jesus by his friends, right? I actually think it's a good pickup. This is really kind of important for us as Episcopalians to remember. Jesus does not commend the faith of the man on the mat, he may not even have any faith. His friends bring him to Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He could have been begging and screaming against going, but because he was on the mat, he couldn't stop his friends. If we were friends like that, the people that we work with, who who brought our friends even begging, uh, you know, against their will to Jesus, well, there's something to that, I think, you know? Actually, that's a pretty good definition of friendship, isn't it? That you do what's best for your friends, regardless of their wishes. (laughs) I mean, really, there's something to that, don't you think? Okay, well, maybe that was just only cute. I I thought that was nice. Um, Okay, so then we get to see the calling of Matthew, who we think is also named Levi, and he's a tax collector. And, of course, that's a real big problem. And I've explained this to you a long time ago, but I'll do it again what tax collectors are like and why they're hated. You know, if you're Jewish, um, you weren't occupied by Rome by your own desire. It was a forcible occupation. And the way that worked really is that Rome was pretty happy for there to be peace, they just wanted your money. And really, Rome wanted a dollar per person. But how to get it? Because there's a lot of people in Rome, you know, it goes all, it's the biggest empire in the known world at that time, right, all the way from Spain, all the way going over close to India. So here's the idea. We'll just split the empire in half for tax collecting purposes. So on the Western half, well, they'll have to collect now, you see, $2, one to pay the local administrators and one to pass on to Rome, right? Makes sense. Well, of course, the Western empire's really pretty big, so maybe we'll, we'll expand that into three different districts. So what they'll take is $3 per person, one for them, one for the Western hemisphere, and then one for Rome, right? Because you've got, bu- this is bureaucracy at its finest, right? Well, okay, in those three districts, let's split them into three other ones. So now you're taking $4 a person, and then we'll get down to the county level, you know, and now you're taking five. And then let's talk about the city level, six. And now we're talking about wards, you know, as it were, or, 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 or a little more localities. And now we're talking about neighborhoods. So now we're up to 7 or $8. It's just the problem at the bottom is, it's not really just even one. If you're a local tax collector, the truth is you get as much money as you can get. How much money can you get? Well, you hire Brutus and Cassius, who are kind of like Hans and Franz, and you give them some clubs, and you say, Your tax bill is $400. It should have been eight. I'm not giving you that, I'm giving you eight. Okay, Brutus, Cassius, beat the stuffing out of Antha Atkins until she gives me $400. That's how it goes. You may say, Where are the police? There were no police in the ancient world. I mean, we don't, we don't remember this. There were no police until about 150 years ago anywhere in the whole world. There's just no police. There's soldiers and people made citizen's arrests and you'd better have really darn good evidence, right? That's how it worked. So what you're hearing is that the tax collectors are basically extortionists who are getting as much money as they can out of you. That's the reputation, whether they were that honest one or not. That's what they were perceived as and beyond that. Tax collectors are people who are helping a government you don't like because they're giving them money. Yours, as much as they can get from you. And that money has a picture of Caesar who's declared himself a living God. So they're idolaters. They're committing treason. They're extortionists. And they're thieves. And that's who Jesus picked to follow him. Notice there was no commentary. Hey, Matthew... Stop charging egregious interest, and then come follow me. The call is, come follow me right now. And it's helpful for us to remember that, you know, when you think about who the disciples are, the disciples are 12 people, and at least a few of them hated each other categorically. Because there's Simon the Zealot, and zealots are people who kill tax collectors and soldiers to cause um, terror. I mean, it's like the Mujahideen back in, in, in the early time. They would go into the middle of a crowd, a crowded street with a knife under their cloak and they would stab the soldier and walk away. They would do that to tax collectors. They would slit their throats and walk away. That's what zealots did. One of the disciples was a zealot. Another disciple, you know him as Judas, Judas Iscariot, right? Um, also a kind of zealot that's an assassin, we think, because um, there's, a, there's a group of these zealots called the Sicarii, and those are the ones who are the throat slitters. So there's two of those, and there's one tax collector, and, and these people probably hated each other. And Jesus forces them into a group together, right? So, so this is good to know. And that tension's helpful because you read that they go to this banquet and the Pharisees say, Hey, why are you eating with sinners? And I think their question's really fair, because so let's think about it. We know everybody's valuable to God and stuff, but I think what they're wondering is, hey, this guy, this Matthew, this tax collector, hasn't repented that, that we know of. He hasn't given money back he hasn't stopped charging interest he hasn't said i'm going to quit so how can you spend time with somebody who's a known sinner without evidence of repentance that's a good question isn't it when i was in high school my parents discouraged me from hanging out with certain people right because their reputation could stick to me because they could rub off on me i mean that, that this is what we teach our kids right that could be a bad influence on you instead of right, the other way, you could be a good influence on them, because we know that's a slippery slope, don't we? Right? And the religious people are really concerned about that. And Jesus, of course, is not concerned. He says, (laughs) it's the the sick that need the doctor, not the healthy. In some ways, acknowledging that they're right. In some ways, acknowledging, you're right, this person's sick. Which is exactly why I'm spending time with them. It's interesting, isn't it? It, and, And Jesus does this thing where he quotes the Psalms, which Pharisees did and Sadducees would not have done this, right? He says, go and, and think about this one. I desire, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, right? And there's a strong, a strong uh, argument that says mercy is, is, is a little bit of an outdated word for us because mercy is something that a king gives to a peon that would be merciful to you in my position of power and, and really maybe an argument a strong argument marcus borg makes is that we'd better translate this word compassion right god desires compassion with our fellow people because we as people aren't aren't actually hierarchical in the kingdom of god we're not priests aren't better than deacons right we're all ministry of the laity and then the deacons and the and the and the priests etc right we're all in the same playing field and so compassion's a really good word for that you know what's interesting too right is that um compassion and mercy i think are really really different things Uh, compassion allows you to still have accountability and hold people accountable to statutes when they break laws but you do feel for them mercy might mean no consequence i mean just think think through that a little bit right i mean i i don't think jesus is saying we shouldn't have consequences i think i think he's saying we should only have them with compassion And this is where he goes on to say this thing that I think is this brilliant twist on, and, I, and I've told you this before from the pulpit, on, on, on Jean Piaget's thing about how we learn. So I just wanna mention this again, because this is about wineskins, and I think it's really what Matthew and Mark and Luke are saying about the gospel itself. You know, um, Jean Piaget is this guy who graded uh, IQ tests of children in Switzerland, and he realized that according to their age, um, they missed the same questions and you can do this experiment with a four-year-old, you can take a really thin glass cylinder and a really fat one, wide, and you can take a measuring cup that's one cup and fill it with water in front of them. They're watching. And and pour one cup into the tall one and fill it up and pour a cup into the big fat one. And you say to the child, which one has more water? And every four-year-old will tell you the skinny one does because the water level is apparently higher. Now, they just watched you put the same amount of water in there. But because of the development of their brain, it looks like more. And so Piaget noticed, aha, there's something going on with the development of the brain that all four-year-olds are missing this problem, no matter how well they do with other things, that kind of problem. And so what he went on to say is, basically, we, we all have this way that we look at the world and it's called equilibrium, that is, like, the world makes sense to us, even if it doesn't seem fair, like, we just kind of know what to expect. So, so we have a worldview, and, and then we have this sort of, Piaget calls, new information, and it's, it's, it's dissonant with the way we're used to looking at the world. Like, like maybe there's an eclipse or something like that. What's that? <laughs> right? The sun's supposed to rise every day. What happened? So what it does is it sends us into a crisis. Really what's at stake is our whole way of looking at the world, right? And so we have two choices in the crisis, and he actually sort of uses the word choice. And, and sometimes, truthfully, I don't feel like we, we, we necessarily have a choice. We can either accommodate our worldview to the new information. And what that would mean is we'd have to change the way we look at everything to fit the new information. Or We can take that new information. I'm going to spell this wrong. Does it have two S's? Assimilate? Yeah, we're going to put the S back into assimilate. We can can take that information and actually change the information so it fits the way we're used to looking at the world. We can say that's a fluke or it's a hoax or whatever. I didn't see it for what it really was. So my old way of looking at the world wasn't threatened. Okay? Either thing we do, you see, we're going to come at a new or old equilibrium and we're going to go on doing the world with some comfort because nobody can live in crisis all the time right you you, at some point have to make some sense right and why am i showing you all this that's because when jesus says you if you take what i'm telling you and pour it into an old wine skin it'll swell and break because new wine swells if you take what i'm telling you and pretend it's a new piece of cloth and you stitch it into your old cloth to fill in a hole, it'll shrink and break your old cloth even worse. What Jesus is saying, I think, is you cannot assimilate the gospel. You can't take what I'm telling you and just make it a neat teaching for the week. The gospel is asking us to re-examine our entire worldview, all of it, including, is there a hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven? Who's out and who's in with god really how do we treat people and that's the goal of the sermon today that may not work how do we treat people frankly that are nasty when people are evil to us how do we resist evil without becoming evil ourselves right because if somebody hits us and we hit them back and we said hitting was wrong well, I mean, we just did exactly what we didn't like And if we do that thing we didn't like, if we resist violence by being violent, we've assimilated the gospel instead of accommodated it. Right? And I think what Jesus is saying is when we do that, we actually create a bigger hole than the one we already have right now. One way to hear it. Is that super weird? (laughs) Yeah, and I, and I do, you know, and I think the truth is, I think that's where we all are, you know? Because the truth is, and, the, and I think this is one of those tough things to say about, about childhood education, right? You can't teach children to think abstractly because they can't. So what do you teach children until they're able to think abstractly? You teach them rules. You have to. And this is one of those funny things. If we don't teach our children's rules, we're not teaching them anything. So we have to think about what rules do we teach and are there rules about how the rules work, you know? It's really an interesting thing. You can read day school kids a Bible story like Abraham heard God say, kill your son. And then you can say to day school kids, you can say to day school kids, do you think God would do that? And they'll say, no. No. Okay? No, I don't think so. Well, why not? Because God doesn't want anybody killed. And you say, okay, look, you've held on to the rule. So now you know the fact pattern. So so then you say, how does it explain? Well, maybe Abraham thought that's what God was saying. Actually, I think that's a good interpretation. I think that's what Abraham thought God was saying and I think he was wrong. (laughs) It's the only way it makes sense all the way across the board. But you see, sometimes we're afraid to teach him the story because we think they can't handle it. Instead, There's the rules we taught about loving your neighbor and being kind and not killing people and and actually tell the story in such a way that they can buttress those rules where they question the story instead of the rule. The way I learned it is God did tell Abraham and that's what you should do. Whatever God tells you, that's what you do, even if it's kill your child. That was the rule I learned in Baptist Sunday school, right? So that if, if God told me in the middle of the night, get up and kill your brother in his sleep, well, I should listen to God. I didn't believe God would do that except I do believe god did that with abraham <laughs> did you understand what i mean right and, and and this is just an interesting way to think about how this starts to get real yucky real fast is which rules are we privileging are we privileging the rules of the gospel or are we using the gospel to privilege the rules that we've been socialized into does that does that make any sense what i'm saying because i want to say i don't think that criticism only applies to say jewish people that get stuck in the law as a fundamentalist christian i was more stuck in the law than any jewish person i know because what i've I've come to realize is when you really study in the jewish method you argue all the time i went to church you weren't allowed to argue you weren't you could get thrown out (laughs) or worse people would pray for you okay (laughs) 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 yes sir I think you can see this being played out in every church, including our own, right? Because a lot of people think, oh, the Episcopal Church, that's the welcoming church. Depends what's one. It really does, you know? Again, there's Episcopal churches that still won't accept a lot of things like the 1976 prayer book, women priests, gay couples that want to come in and worship. I mean, you pick what you want, right? People wearing dirty clothes. And they think that they're doing that on behalf of the gospel, when instead what they're doing, right, is putting some new wine into an old wineskin, and it ruins the wine for everybody, for the whole world. I mean, I really think this metaphor is quite clever, you know, that, that Jesus uses, right? And of course, what it asks us to consider is, I think, this is, I really think this is the point of epiphany. In what ways am I assimilating the gospel instead of accommodating my life to it? Have I settled for taking taking snippets from jesus and putting it in my own mind instead of reorienting my mind to jesus does that make sense i'm pretty sure discipleship is about us doing that because we want to do that in all ways right in all ways i mean if you grew up that the world was made literally in six days that's and i did we we This is a this is a thing you got to deal with right you got to deal with these crises because biblical accuracy is at stake for you Okay, I don't want to belabor that but I but I but I do think that's that's really helpful So when we hear jesus challenging us, I I really think he is trying to challenge us (laughs) To not just do that Um, Okay, we know this story and jesus You know speaking of these things he goes around breaking these things and it's important to know that he does he's going to see this this synagogue leader's dead daughter and and we know he intends to bring her back to life the word for that's resuscitate right he'll bring her back to life and then she'll die again so she will not be resurrected the only person in the bible who's resurrected is jesus because he comes back to life and will never die again Does does it make sense lazarus was resuscitated lots of widows are resuscitated right but only one person's resurrected so he's going there and on the meantime a, a bleeding woman touches jesus and we know that if you're bleeding you can't touch anybody else you make them unclean and then jesus touches a dead girl and she really is dead she really is dead she's not asleep he says friends she's not really dead of course he's talking figuratively right she's asleep but jesus goes around defiling himself to give life to other people you see, what he's doing is challenging the whole thinking, right? A bleeding, dirty, sick lady, a dead person is worthy of us defiling ourselves so that they can have dignity in life. I mean, again, talk about reexamining the way you look at the world. That would have been very new, and in some ways it is for us too, right? Because we have standards not just of, of hygiene but of, but of dignity, right? The other thing that I want to tell you in chapter nine, just before we, we we gloss over it right, is that um there's a there's a man who's who is rendered mute by a demon. Okay, and it's just really important to know that, that a lot of times we we hear that word demon and we 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 think of like, oh What does that mean? Is that like the exorcist or poltergeist? Is that like the red guy in the tail? And and of course, in Greek, actually, that word demon translates to English as unclean spirit. So this is really important. Demon is not an English word. It never was. It's a transliteration of this word in Greek. So in Greek, the word is... This is terrible. Is daemon... Right, that's how you'd spell it in Greek, and what we did in the King James Bible is instead of translating that word from Greek to English, we just transliterated each letter. So the delta is a D, the alpha is an, the alpha epsilon is an E because that's the way you'd say it in Greek. Right? So you may, maybe you know this with the word baptize, not a real word. That's a Greek word and it means to submerge or to dunk. The reason King James did not call him John the Dunker is because they were. Um, sprinkling people in the church and that was going to question the practice. So King James intentionally did not translate the word into English because it would have competed with the practice. Same thing with this word. So what I want you to know is demons are not real in English. There are no demons in the Bible. There are only unclean spirits. Only. What's the difference? Uh, Okay, I think the difference for us because again, we we got this real coded um, and, and, and if you've read it, you start to get it, in, in Dante's Inferno, and in John Milton's Paradise Lost, that's when these things became the insidious, resisting God, dirty, evil powers that have a will and volition and are trying to destroy the quality of your life. Those are things like, you know, again, that can possess you and take away your human faculties and make your head spin around 360 degrees and vomit, you know? Um, so we sort of, what we did through those people is we said there, are, there is good versus evil. And they're fighting it out. And in the end, maybe God will win. And the biblical worldview is, no, 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 God's winning. There's no no even a contest, right? Instead, we we know that there are realities in our world that it's really hard to say anything other than they're unclean. It's a dumping ground for, for patterns that isolate people from God or from health. And let's think through some of those together. Addiction is an unclean spirit. We know chemically it changes your brain, whether you're addicted to exercise or sex or drugs or alcohol that's an unclean spirit anybody ever known an addict cool. they didn't do it to be mean they were sick it's an unclean spirit and you know it's so sick it's not like a shot's going to cure that right I mean, unclean spirit. that's right and they're not trying to ruin everybody else's life they're really not and, and that's one of the best the things you, the, about AA. One of the good things about AA, AA has its challenges, but one of the good things is, you say, our best thinking got us here. Our best thinking got us addicted to drugs and alcohol. Not our worst thinking, our best thinking. It's interesting to think about, right? It's not just, uh, not just addiction, though. Sometimes unclean spirits can be put into us, whether we deserved it or not. So in some ways, you can say, well, alcohol, drugs, maybe you have some choice in that, right? But if you're a victim of domestic violence, if you're a victim of an alcoholic, there's a group like that called Al-Anon, right? If, if you're a victim of um, child abuse, those are unclean spirits that you didn't deserve, you didn't ask for, right? The remedy for those is not quick. I mean, I think, that actually, the Bible is a lot more thoughtful than we give it credit for. Th- there's not possession, there's, there's a spirit that is unclean and how to remove it, right? And in this case, in chapter 9, the unclean spirit is making it so the person can't talk. Curious to know, right, there's been some, some research on this I recently read, right, where there, there's a woman who can't see, and there's nothing wrong with her eyes. It turns out it was completely psychosomatic illness. She was physically blind because of something psychological. So she went to a counselor and she could see again. Bizarre, isn't it? People maybe have been wiser than we thought because they realized, right, that that there are these unclean things that can separate us from from true vision and seeing and healthy life, right? Again, I think the important thing is people with unclean spirits didn't deserve them. They have them, and and God ultimately wants them driven out as best we can, right, while respecting the dignity of the person. That's what Jesus does, okay? Okay. But I do think there's something to this, and this is where I'm a big believer in not demons, not believer in demons, big believer in unclean spirits, right? I know some of my own unclean spirits. Those are the things like I try to change and I don't like, and I just, I have to, I have to live with them in some ways, right? When will they ultimately be gone? I suppose when I die. That's maybe too weird. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, well, maybe we should hop over into chapter 10. Am I going too fast? Is it okay? Maybe I'm going too slowly. I don't know. <laughs> the truth is, we could spend a lot of time on this, uh, which I'd love to do. In chapter 10, this is when Jesus sends out the 12. And what do you know? He gives them authority over unclean spirits. <laughs> do you see how interesting it is in chapter 10? And now I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. Chapter 10, verse 1. He called to him the 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. In Greek, it says he gave them authority over demons. So, what's interesting is that sometimes your translator will see the word demon in Greek and translate it as demon, and sometimes your translator will call it unclean spirit within two or three verses of each other. Now, why did they make that choice? I don't know. (laughs) Because they're not consistent, they're not being consistent. And this is what becomes very important to remember when we read scripture, right? Is that every scripture is not a translation. It's an interpretation. You're reading someone else's interpretation of what the words say. Which reminds us to not hold on this stuff too tight. There's room to play with it because they've already played with it before you got it. Does, it. does that make sense? It's fun in a Bible study. Everyone have a it, it can be very fun. Yes, sir? We have no idea who wrote these things. No idea. Yeah. All that's traditional. And, and again, that's one of the first things that, you know, if I were to go in, it's funny, this is great thing about the Episcopal Church, I come in, I've been to seminary, and you say, wow, look, you've got education we don't have. Share it with us. If I went back to my, 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 my ordaining Baptist congregation, because I'm still ordained uh, a Southern Baptist, they'd take it away if they knew. But if I went back and said, you know, we don't really know if Matthew wrote this. They said, of course Matthew wrote it what are you saying? You know, and, and there'd be a lot at stake in that question, not realizing, right, that that's a traditional label, not, not an original one. Yeah. Um, we see what the disciples are supposed to do. The followers of Jesus are supposed to go around and drive out unclean spirits and heal every disease and every infirmity. And sometimes we think, oh no, they're supposed to go around and tell people about Jesus. This is how they do it. And this is what evangelism is. It's meeting people's physical and spiritual and emotional needs. That's what the disciples are asked to do. Notice if they do it in pairs, they go in two-by-twos, right? And Jesus even tells them in Matthew, especially in Matthew, in Luke he won't do this, in Matthew he says, go only to Jewish people, don't go to Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, but only go to people like you, and and don't take any money, and drive people out. And he gives them a lot of instructions, really, about how... um, people are going to treat them. And we think all of this actually is a little anachronistic, that part of what Jesus is saying is what happens later to the disciples. People revile you and hate you. People will uh, call you up into court and have trials, but don't worry, have no fear, because I will give you the words to say, you don't need to be clever, you just need to speak the truth. Right? And, and we know this because there wasn't really a widespread persecution of Christians for a long time. Okay, it wasn't like christians were persecuted as soon as they existed people just thought they were jewish people right so that's a little bit of what's little bit of what's going on here um, notice that the way people receive christians right if they receive you they receive me also and this is part of the reason why christian became a good label original followers of jesus were called following the way with a capital w so to speak and christian's a later title and that means little christ and the title comes from passages like this, because however they receive you, they receive me. So the way they receive the little Christ is the way they receive the big Christ. And it reminds us, are we being <laughs> the bigger Christ or are we being the littler one? Coming back to that theme, right? He says this other interesting thing, right, that um, I haven't come to bring peace, I bring, I've come to bring the sword. Unless you hate your mother and brothers, right then you have no place in my kingdom and of course those are very countercultural family values that he's saying And, and i think we always have two ways to read scripture at least there's more than two but we can either read scripture as god telling us what we're supposed to do hate your mother and brothers or we can read it as god describing the reality in which we live right because for jesus remember to go his mother and brothers thought he was crazy and tried to get him to stop teaching And so when he said no, that was considered hateful to them (laughs) So is Jesus describing realities that we often find ourselves in Where we're having to resist cultural and family values to to really to do this Or is he saying no you should intentionally break those values Does, Does that make sense what I'm saying? And when Jesus says I didn't come to bring peace but bring the sword Of course we know that Jesus ultimately, I mean, our bigger filter, our bigger rule, is that Jesus did come to bring peace, but wow, we, there's been a lot of swords in that <laughs> up until this day, but especially back then, a lot of division and violence done because your doctrine wasn't right, or the way you celebrate the Eucharist wasn't right, or calling your person a priest instead of a minister wasn't right. I mean, th- these are the, the, the things that continue to divide us today, right? So is, is it descriptive or prescriptive? I mean, I think that's always important to remember when we read. Particularly the hebrew bible you read the hebrew bible and you hear god telling people hey go kill every man woman and child Because that's how you fight a holy war and you gotta ask yourself Did god really say that or is that how people thought they were to behave? Because those are two very different ways to interpret don't you think? Um, okay, so that was really fast chapter 10, Whew. What verse are you? Hmm. Um, can you tell me the verse? I don't. I don't have the title. Oh. Oh. Ten. I don't have that. My ten. Chapter ten. Verse twenty-six. Would you read it? Oh, thank you, okay, yep, I see it now. Okay, well, let's, let's back up too, because again, this is something interpreters have done. That word in Greek that you're looking at right there is the word Gehenna. And for pilgrims that are going to Jerusalem in about three weeks, what you're gonna see is outside the city of Jerusalem, there's something called the Gehenna Valley. Right? And it's just just this natural low point. It's a ditch. And in the Gehenna Valley, Gehenna, that's where you burn your trash. (laughs) So I think it's really important, the concept of an eternal hell where there's punishment and torment was not around at the time of Jesus. Nobody believed in that, nobody. Uh, This place here is a place of complete destruction. Because, you know, we don't torture our trash when we burn it. It doesn't, doesn't hurt the trash. It just goes away, right? And so I, I, I think we've got multiple ways to read it. The traditional way is you better, be real, you better be afraid of God because God will send you to hell and torment you and punish you forever with hot pokers and flames and ironic punishments, right? That's the one Dante Alighieri gave us. For the first time, you really read it in Dante's Inferno, and there's seven circles, Right? and we've come to believe that that's what jesus was talking about and it's not i mean another option we have is this this is a place where fire ultimately consumes and consumes what now we've got choices consumes everything that you are your soul and your body and you're completely gone okay you think about that that's actually a lot more compassionate of god to just when you die as a bad person you just cease to exist forever then you get punished eternally for something you did temporarily right i mean think through that with me the things we do on earth are temporal. They're not eternal. <laughs> you hurt somebody, it's, it's temporal. It hurt them for a bit, not forever. So you have to pay for that forever. It is not even just, right? So, so this gives us some options. One is that if you're a really, really bad person or you don't believe in Jesus, when you die, that's it. You cease to exist. Okay. I think the stronger image there for burning and destruction in the Bible, the stronger one, is, that, is an image of a refiner's fire that's where the heat burns up the dross so that the gold is no longer clouded so we have another option here which is that ultimately what god's going to destroy is the worst in us god's going to destroy this move in us god would like to do it now but god will do it later if we if we don't work on it and that's a good thing and i think we have to worry wonder about this too paulie i mean Again, we can read it so literally that we say, well, geez, it says I'm supposed to be afraid of God. But the same scriptures tell us perfect love drives down all fear. And if God loves us perfectly, then we're not to be afraid of God. We're supposed to trust. So I think sometimes we, we can read scriptures so literally that we forget to read it seriously. And I think sometimes scriptures are actually not trying to reinforce our culture, they're trying to question them. There are people in my life who were disciplinarians and authoritarians, and I did what they wanted because I was afraid of them. Right? And then they were people who I respected, but I did what they wanted because I loved them. And the question is, which one's God? Because the people you were afraid of you could never make a mistake or the whole relationship was, was at stake, right? Is God like that? The God I grew up with was like that. I just want you to know, right? That was if I did one thing wrong, I deserved hell forever. I grew up believing that. So it's really hard to, to get yourself out of that cycle of, of thinking that God is like that because if God's like that, God's worse than I am. I mean, I'm not a great guy, but I'm a little better than that, right? I'll let a few things slide. <laughs> you, you see what I mean? In some ways, the scriptures then are really not just us reading God, they're, they're God reading us. The question is, what kind of God are you trusting in? Yeah, so we know Dante's writing in, 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 in like the 12th century, right, so that's when the medieval Europe is still in the dark ages, right? Which was really a time where people lived to be 30 years old. The priests didn't know how to read Latin and they made it up, right? Uh, they said magic words like hocus pocus at the Eucharist, which is where that phrase comes from. People heard the priests say, instead of hocus corpus meum, They'd say hocus-pocus, and little kids would go around hocus-pocus because that turns bread into the body of Jesus, right? So it's magic. Um, there was rampant clerical abuse. They were, you, know, you could be bishop of multiple places. There was simony, the selling of office. Bishops had lots of children and harems. I mean, the clergy were just dirty scumbags, right? And part of this movement is, you no, know, you do have to pay for that later, right? And that's where purgatory comes from. Purgatory is a lot more just than hell because purgatory doesn't last forever, right? Purgatory makes sense. You have to pay for what you do wrong. When you have paid for it, then you can go to heaven. (laughs) Not in the Bible. It was a demand by the lay people. The lay people wanted more from their religious life than the priests were giving them. That's where the rosary came from, right? Lay people saw Muslims doing it, and they said, that's cool, we want that. The the Pope didn't want the rosary. So a lot of this stuff that we see in Dante and Milton has to do with gaps in our religious experience that people will fill in one way or another, right? In some ways it serves people well to know that there would be some sort of ultimate justice. I I just, I think we've gone too far, you know, and again, we teach our kids these rules, and, and if we teach them these rules, these are the ones I learned as a kid, really what it tells me is God's not very trustworthy. I can trust that god's going to be very mad at me all the time that's that's what i learned now on the other hand god's loving just don't ever make a mistake that was the rule i internalized as a kid you know i still fight it i mean that's it's hard to get out of that rule because now i'm worried i'm, I'm questioning it in front of you maybe i'm committing blasphemy and god's going to be even madder at me but it can't possibly be consonant with our faith can it Which means there's got to be a different way to read it. There's got to be different ways to read this than just the one read I was given or some of us were given. There's got to be different reads. Is that helpful or no? So there's lots of choices, right? And really, I think what I think <clears throat> probably the num- the dominant interpretation from the academy is that you know we used to think the kingdom of God is something that happens later. But what Jesus is saying, that the kingdom of God is right here. It's threatening to invade our world, and we want to help. We want to aid and embed the invasion of our in wor- the evasion of the kingdom of God into our world, so that it happens right now, right? So one way to hear this is when when unclean spirits are driven out, the kingdom of God has arrived. And really what that means is the kingdom of God. You're going around, you're preaching the gospel, that's good news. So anytime you do something that's good news, you're living in the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of people. If, if that makes sense. Big Greek philosophical idea that there's a city of God and the city of men. And, and St. Augustine wrote this really long word called the city of God. Maybe you've read it, it's like four or 500 pages, right? And he contrasts what it's like to live in the city of men. They didn't think women full citizens The, the city of people with the city of the gods right and the city of gods were the virtues that plato talked about right and the forms and 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 so what augustine's doing is saying look this platonic idea is really about the character of our life sometimes we live as though we're in the city of men but we have this opportunity to live in god's city right now and see that's the difference between accommodating and assimilating Okay, I'm getting a little bit bogged down, and I wish I had better answers. Um, really, I just have questions that you get to ask <laughs> the text, right? Because there's not an airtight way to read this book. There's not. Or there, there, there is. I grew up with it, and it's not very life-giving, right? There, there's got to be panoply of options here in chapter 11 is it okay to go I'm just, just speed through in chapter 11 we hear john the, john the baptist who baptized jesus doesn't seem to know who jesus is and well you know they lived really different lives because john came as an aesthetic he didn't come eating or drinking wine or, or food really he ate locusts and wild honey and wore camel skin on his back and people said you're crazy and full of an unclean spirit and jesus says i've come eating and glint, drinking and people call me a glutton and a drunkard Interesting, isn't it? Right? Just goes to tell you you can never please anybody (laughs) Everybody you can never please everybody, right? I mean really what he's doing is is contrasting two different ways of life And of course we you know uh, This is part of the scandal that gets admitted is jesus did drink wine And he didn't eat food and and john didn't and, and neither one of them was particularly well received by people in their own time, right? There's this woe to unrepentant cities, um where he's, you know, these are the cities when he's talking about Beth- Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. These are the people, places where Jesus actually spent most of his time. And he's saying, look, if people had spent time in you, if spent time in Sodom and Gomorrah like I'm spending in you, they'd have changed. <laughs> so it'll be worse for you all than it will for them. Worse for you all. Is he talking about their eternal destination, or is he talking about they've lived exclusively in the city of human beings and not lived in the city of God, even though they were shown that they, they had that choice? How does it get worse? See, it's, it's great to think about this, right? If everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah is going to hell, which is what I grew up with, how does it get worse than that? <laughs> You're going to a worse hell worser, than, than the other hell that's the worst thing you could go to. I mean, you've you got to hear this this is why Dante came up with circles of hell. But, but mathematically, if it's bad forever, you don't get worse than bad forever. <laughs> it's just gonna be really bad forever, right? And, and I think the language, just is a, we just have to remember that the, that the language is, is sort of stretching this. I mean, what's worse than eternal hell? Nothing. So if that's, if that's what we believe in, it's not like you're going to get a worse hell than somebody else. <laughs> Do you, you know what I mean? I, and that's where sometimes you pay attention to language and, and, and the whole thing becomes a little bit silly. Well, I think. There are places, surely, that are what we call hell on earth. And I think hell is not a bad concept too, to get rid of this idea of, of, of hell. I've been to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, and everything's there. You know, you've got been, if you've been to Dachau, they blew the whole thing up, and there's like two ovens, <clears throat> and it's, it's, it's sad. But you go to Auschwitz, the barbed wire's still there, the dormitories are still there. And <clears throat> I'm not like a really spiritual person, like weirdo person, but there's like a spirit to the place of just grief and loss and gross. Um, there's an unclean spirit in that place. Right? I, 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 th- I think people are savvy to know that. You ever been somewhere where there was an unclean spirit? I mean, something in the air, you know? And, and you sort of couldn't even figure out what it was. Like, it wasn't necessarily because the Holocaust was there, but like, spaces have feels to them sometimes, right? Sometimes they're holy, and sometimes they're just the opposite, right? And, and the truth is, right, there's, there's whole cities and countries and regimes and ways of life that have been hell on earth, Especially if you were an armenian or you were you were a tutsi right when you should have been a hutu right i mean we understand that right i, I think jesus is talking about that more than he's talking about your eternal soul with hot pokers and red guys i think <clears throat> uh, chapter 12 is this okay by the way I'm worried. I'm just, you know, I know this is like my great lecture. You know, I'm just getting it in. Whew. Okay. Um, well, i just to make sure I'm not getting bogged down on things you don't care about. Is it, is it helpful to know about Beelzebub and Beelzebul? Um, there's a lot of corruption going on in the word since I'm talking about some of these words. You know, in Hebrew, there's this word... Baal or Baal, and it just means Lord. So, a Baal is a plantation owner in the Old South. That's a Baal, right? A master. It turns out that Baal can also be the name of a deity that looks like a bull that causes rain, right? And so, what you read in the Hebrew Bible is that um, there is this God called Baal, and Jezebel follows Baal, and Elijah says follow God instead, right? And What's interesting is that, that there's a lot of people that say that Baal, with a capital B, is the Baal of heaven. That is, the named God Baal is the master of all the other gods. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Because it just means Lord, right? It means Lord. And we forget that people were very, very, very polytheist. And even when you read the Bible and you read our Psalms, you'll hear things in the Psalter that say, ascribe to the Lord all you gods. Ascribe to the Lord all you gods, which recognizes there were other gods, right? They clearly believe in other gods. But what the Psalter is saying is that God is the Baal of all the gods. The master. Does this make sense? So far, I'm not losing you, am I? Right? Again, the words have double meaning. One's a personal name and one's a category, right? Well, uh, what happens is, in order to recognize Baal's ascendancy in the heavens, there's this word, Baal Zabul, <laughs> which means this word sort of means prince, right? Is in the, the royal position with authority in the heavens. This is Baal, the proper name, as the prince. So that's Baal Zabul. That's like the master of heaven. And so, what they're saying is, look, you can only drive out unclean spirits through the name of the master of the unclean spirits. The bale of the unclean spirits, small b, the bale, that's how you do it. You're in collusion with the unclean spirits, you just have an uncleaner one than they have, and that's why they listen to you. Does, does that make sense? Again, this is sort of creating a hierarchy in the world of darkness, right? There's there's Satan, the devil, and then there's yuckier demons. We call those powers and principalities. And then there's the, the normal red guys, right? And so if you're Satan, you can tell the normal red guys what to do and they have to listen because you're worse than they are. I guess actually it's an upside-down pyramid, right? Does it, make, does, does it make sense what I'm saying? That's one way to read it. That's not what's going on here, right? And by the way, when he says, um, Baal zabul, oh gosh, I don't even know if I need to write this in a marker. <clears throat> and then there's Beelzebub. Right? Does yours have both of these? Sometimes you look in the note and it'll say, it is only by Beelzebul that you're driving out the demons, and there'll be a little asterisk there, or like a footnote one or two, or a letter A, and you look at the bottom and it'll say, or Beelzebub. And 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 this is this is actually a Syriac corruption of the word Beelzebul, and, and this means Roughly something similar, this is the Baal who flies, this is the Lord of the Flies. So when you hear William Golding's title, The Lord of the Flies, it's actually biblical and a corruption, and particularly these are the kinds of flies that gather over dung, and what they're saying is, Jesus, it's only by the Lord of the doo-doo flies that you drive away the doo-doo flies. And Jesus says this really curious thing, doesn't he? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And so if Satan drives out Satan, his kingdom will fall. Which I think is not saying what we think it means. I think what he's saying is what we told our children. Two wrongs don't make a right. And that means that if somebody's waging war, just think about this for a second, in killing innocent people, and you want them to stop, so you wage war against them, did you just Resort to the Lord of the duty flies. Now, I'm not saying anything about pacifism. I had a good friend in Coronado who I think said this really well. This is really what Jesus would say. There's no such thing as a just war. There are just causes. And that was wise, I thought. That was a four-star admiral who said that. No such thing as a just war. There are just causes. And I think that takes this very seriously, right? But sort of we know we have to remember that sometimes getting retaliation and revenge to stop somebody from being bad doesn't ultimately stop it because we just became the people that we were trying to stop right that's one of those problems when you think about now it's going to sound really political i think it's really hard when you think about having a war on terror how do you have a war on terror because if you use drones that's pretty terrifying I just, just have to be honest, again, that comes from my Coronado community, you know. This four-star admiral, he said, you know, if you're going to kill a human being, you should do it. And, and that was interesting to think about. People flying drones are doing it in Las Vegas, and it looks a lot like Call of Duty. I mean, I just, I just, um, that, and that's from an admiral. That's not from some, you know, I and mean, this, this is a guy who very much supports the military. Interesting to think about, though, right? I know that seems like a stretch, but I don't think it's a stretch at all. How is it we intend to drive out unclean spirits like hatred and racism and terror and enmity? How do we want to do that? This is why you can have really good Bible studies, right? Or really bad ones. And this is why you can hold the Bible and and vehemently justify slavery. Or you can hold the Bible and say it's wrong because the Bible can say whatever you want it to say if we do this if we're willing to do this right then this is about transforming what we say I think I know that was really weird I was hoping that injected some energy hey maybe I can talk to you about some really favorite things of mine uh, that come in later chapters is is this will be okay oh no this this one I don't know what to tell you okay yeah I'll tell you a couple other ones When you drive out an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, it it goes around looking for some place to go. (laughs) And then it comes back and sees that the house is well swept in order and it brings seven worse than itself and fills up the place so that the final state of the person was worse than the beginning. I have no idea what that means. It's really terrifying, isn't it? Except I did work in Narcotics Anonymous for a while, and what I discovered is some people would drive out the narcotic addiction, and, and the way they do that is by becoming addicted to cigarettes and exercise and pornography, and then they would come back and use the narcotics again, too. So now they were addicted to four things instead of just one. And I don't know if that's what Jesus is talking about. I don't know if he's saying, unless we get some deliverance from addiction, period, we'll find ourselves addicted to many things. I, I, don't, I don't know. That's the only way I can make sense out of that. The idea, right, that, you know, drugs is interesting, like particularly crystal meth, which is like the worst drug you can take. Do you know, about this is really bad, right? It eats a, a real hole in your brain, right? And unless you can fill that up with something, you now have a gaping point for entry, right? And, and that word we use in the curriculum is called cross-addicted, you become cross-addicted. That's where your initial addiction just gets transferred to other things, and then you usually come back full circle, right? A- a- and I wonder if that isn't sort of what he's saying, that unless we, we fill these spaces and our gaps with something that's substantive and real and life-giving, they become doors for more things to come in. That, that makes sense to me, you, you you know? It makes sense in my experience. I was going to say, experience for sure. I say it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but in your experience, you know that. And I think that's where, in some ways all of you are very well equipped to read the bible whether you've gone to seminary or not if you stop and think about the words particularly if you're given a key this is not about demons it's about patterns of life you can say is that true in my patterns of life for me that's true in my patterns of life right that open doors invite even more unwelcome guests And of course what they say, that in some ways very wise, right, is even though we know which doors in our life are clearly marked to hell, we sure like to open them again. And that's crazy, isn't it, right, that we're that self-destructive. But if you've ever had a... a, Yeah, of course you would. And if you've ever had a child, you know that you don't need to have the last word with a teenager, but man, you love having the last word, don't you? (laughs) Golly, love having that last word. Woo, I'll will show them. All right. <laughs> okay, let me just tell you about a couple of real weird things for five minutes, and, and I'll quit. Is that okay? Just because I, I really will be disappointed if we don't get to do this before Lent. And that's these parables that Jesus tells. These are short little things, and he says the kingdom of God is like this. And a lot of times he says that the kingdom of God is like some really weird stuff. And, and, and initially we don't think that because we say, oh, the kingdom of God's like a pearl merchant. Who spends his whole life looking for a pearl and he finds the perfect one and he sells everything he has and he buys that pearl and that's what we should do right we should just pursue the kingdom of god because that's the pearl except here's the question what's he going to do with that pearl now he just sold everything he had his clothes his food his house and he's got a perfect pearl and he's got no bread he has no ability to make money what will he do with it tomorrow he could sell it, but he can't sell it. He's so deranged, he has to have it, right? He's so deranged, he would sell everything for it. How's he gonna get a job? He doesn't even have a residence. You know, you gotta have somewhere to put a pay stub. He doesn't have any tools, right? He can't do any work. He doesn't have a shop. I mean, I know you're saying, now, Mike, you're making that hard. No, I, I'm just telling you the story, right? In some ways, the kingdom of God is this thing that is ostensibly worthless. But when you see it, you sell everything to have it, you see. You sell your whole way of viewing and thinking because you have to have it. And maybe, maybe Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is not a matter of a practicality. It's not something that will make you rich. It's not something that will make your life more, more lifestyle more ostensibly great. You don't pursue it for those reasons. You pursue it because you're attracted to its beauty and you're beheld by it even to the point of doing things that are crazy. And some people have chosen to, to do that, like St. Anthony, right, father of the monastics. He did, he literally sold all of his stuff. St. Francis did that, too. And we think, hey, cool idea, glad you guys did that. And, and again, I don't think Jesus is saying that's what you have to do. I think he's describing a mindset. Going back to an unclean spirit, we know people that act like that over unclean things. I mean, addiction in point, right? The question is, what if what if... What if we had an addiction over God's beauty, you know, and we we had to be possessed by it? What lengths would we go to? The answer is we'd go to any length, right? Well, maybe. Same thing with the treasure in a field. You know, there's a slave who who bumps into, you know, some, some doubloons in a field, you know, and he covers them up, and then he sells everything he has so he can get that field. Except, as soon as he does that, if he goes and spends the treasure... He can't have it because people will know that it wasn't his to begin with. So he's got this treasure that's immensely valuable, but it's valueless. <laughs> because according to the law, the treasure actually belongs, unlike Texas law where you get the mineral rights when you buy the property. There's other, you know, there's other states where you don't get the mineral rights when you buy the land. It's not here either. Okay, so, so really what you're hearing is this guy has bought a bunch of land in the middle of Midland without any mineral rights. What a waste. Anybody been to Midland? <laughs> you know, if you got the mineral rights, okay. You'd have something to be happy over, right? But, but that's what the story's saying. So imagine that, right? And the kingdom of God's like that. And, and you probably should be scratching your head saying, what, what does that mean? And then there's the business about the yeast. Is that okay? This is the last one, the yeast. The kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman kneaded into some dough, and it permeated the whole dough and made it rise. And we think, okay, Clearly what that's saying is, faith is really small, like yeast. And and if we sort of just knead it into the dough of our lives, it'll make us rise. And that's probably not a bad meaning, that's probably fair. Except, to the original people, there's nothing dirtier than yeast. Because that's what you don't eat during Passover, the holy time of the year, you don't eat yeast. And there's nothing dirtier than a woman, at least a quarter of every month. So the kingdom of God might just be like that dirty woman with that dirty yeast, Weaves that stuff in you and makes you filthy <laughs> Now what could that mean of course it could mean that the kingdom of God is in unclean places Not in the places we think are clean and the kingdom of God is an unclean people Ceremonial and ritually unclean people that have names on them like bipolar schizophrenic, right? The kingdom of God might be in those places and if we would allow that dirtiness to come in it actually might make the kingdom of god rise i mean there's choices here right and the easy way is not always the good one because the easy way forgets that there's a cultural reality to women and yeast and dough all right i didn't get to do that justice but I, i better stop next week we'll try a little bit more of this again and and uh and then it'll be lent And just quick advertisement, um, for Lent, we're reading a book called The Last Week by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, and it talks about each day of the Passion Week, Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter. And what we'll do is we'll come having read a chapter, and we'll come and have a conversation about the chapter, and it's, it's really fabulous. It's the sort of book that shows you these kind of interpretive options in the Scripture that maybe you haven't seen before. I have some available.